Hey everyone, Jason here. Before we get going, I just wanted to take a moment to give a quick shout out to the new paid membership option that we recently rolled out. This option is meant for people that have been getting value from the podcast and want to enable us to keep producing it in a more sustained way. It's also for people that want extra stuff, such as bonus content, a Slack room that's vibrant and filled with people tackling climate change from a wide range of backgrounds and perspectives, as well as a host of programming and events that get organized in the Slack room. We also have a virtual town hall once a month where you can get a preview of what's to come and provide feedback and input on our direction. We'll be adding more membership benefits over time. If you want to learn more, just go to the website, myclimatejourney.co. And if you're already a member, thank you so much for your support. Enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. This is Jason Jacobs, and welcome to My Climate Journey. This show follows my journey to interview a wide range of guests to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and try to figure out how people like you and I can help. Today's guest is Amy Francetic, Managing Director at Buoyant Ventures, a new venture fund focused on digital climate solutions. Previously, she founded and led Energize Ventures, a $165 million venture fund that invests in digital technologies that optimize energy equipment and infrastructure. Prior to Energize, Amy was co-founder and CEO of technology accelerator Clean Energy Trust in Chicago, which has invested in dozens of early-stage clean energy companies across the Midwestern United States. Amy has a lot of experience in clean energy, including on the nonprofit side, as an operator, and for the last several years, as an investor. We have a great discussion in this episode about how the climate movement has evolved from the time that Amy started in it to today, some of the reasons that led Amy down this path in the first place. We talk about the role of innovation and the role of the different types of investment capital, concessionary capital, market-based capital, et cetera. We talk about some of the areas that are most ripe for investment. And of course, the things that a Amy is excited about with her new fund, Buoyant Ventures, and what some of the areas are that she's looking at most closely. Amy Francetic, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Jason, for having me. I'm a big fan of the show, and I'm very humbled to be here. Well, it's a huge honor to have you. And I mean, I've had a wide range of guests over the years, but I mean, you're someone who's worked in this area for a long time and from many different angles on the on the nonprofit side, on the for-profit side, on the investing side, on the on the operating side. And as a newcomer to the space in the last couple of years trying to learn, it'd be hard to feel like my journey was being thorough if I didn't talk to you. Thank you. Well, I love the fact that you've come to it having been a successful entrepreneur because you're an operator and you know how to build businesses. And I think bringing that expertise to the cause is super important. I'm really, really excited that you're part of this and you're expanding the universe of folks that are going to join us in this fight. Well, thanks. Well, maybe for starters, I mean, there's so many different ways that we could start this discussion, but maybe the best way is just to talk about what you're doing currently with Buoyant. So like you, I started my career early as an entrepreneur and started a high-tech company that we sold to Lego, the Danish toy company. This was back in the year 2000. 
And after that, I started Clean Energy Trust, which is a technology accelerator, a nonprofit technology accelerator in Chicago that covers the Midwest. And you were so gracious to do one of your podcasts for our annual event last month. But then after that, raised a fund called Energize Ventures, and then most recently, Buoyant Ventures. And this is my what I consider to be my fourth startup, the third one in the climate area. And so for Buoyant, we are investing, we're a venture fund that's investing in digital climate solutions. And so what we mean by digital climate solutions is mostly software and some low-cost hardware that can accelerate the deployment of climate mitigation solutions, as well as adaptation solutions. And it's, it's really applied more broadly than energy. So it includes energy, but also encapsulates transportation, agriculture, and the built environment. So we're looking for digital solutions that can really facilitate climate mitigation and adaptation across those four main industry segments. We'd like to invest in Series A as sort of our sweet spot, plus or minus, And we've got one deal that we've done, which is a company in your neck of the woods called Raptor Maps that spun out of MIT. And they're a solar software company that is analyzing the performance of utility and commercial scale solar systems using drone footage. And they're also creating a system of record to create sort of an independent source of truth on the performance characteristics of those assets. So that's what I'm doing. I'm super excited about it. We launched during covid we're still alive. You know, we're, it's a crazy time to be in business and start something new, as I'm sure you're hearing about from many of the companies you're talking to, but because of COVID, but in other ways, it's a really great time to be working on climate because there's been some major shifts in the last few years that are making it a little bit more possible to create real solutions as well as to hopefully create some real wealth for investors and entrepreneurs over the next decade. And well, I have a bunch of questions about Buoyant Ventures, but before we go down that path, what is it that first got you heading down the direction of working on climate professionally? And you know, when was that? And what was the first entry point to the category? Sure, sure, sure. So I had been working in the high-tech industry. In, I went to Stanford. I'm in the Chicago area now, live in Lake Forest, where I'm talking to you from today and spent 20 years in California, including my time at Stanford. So I'll tell you a little bit of my personal story, because that's sort of the why, you know, the why I'm doing this. My husband and I were trying to start a family, and we were having trouble and learned along the way that I had cancer. And that was why we were not getting pregnant. And so I had to deal with the cancer. It was a very rare form of cancer and dealt with that first. And soon afterwards, I was fortunate that I was able to get cured of that. And then we got pregnant right away. And so then I had two kids, one after the other, two girls. Right now, they're one's a sophomore and one's a senior in high school. And I tell you that because when I went back to work, I determined to be working on something that had purpose and that had some lasting impact, you know, beyond my life. That just, I just had this different lens on the world, you know, both cancer and the kids sort of turned me to that. And the other thing, when I thought about what I wanted to do that had purpose, I had always worked and loved, sorry, I had always loved the natural environment, had always been an outdoors person, was a runner my whole life. And so I felt like I wanted to do something that would preserve the natural environment for my kids, for their kids, and, you know, that would have some lasting impact. So that's why I decided to turn my attention to climate change and spend the rest of my career working on solutions. And then that led to 
Clean Energy Trust, and then, you know, the Energize, and then now Buoyant. So it's really a personal motivation. God willing, I'll be doing this for a long time still to come. And I think we're making a big impact. I think we have made a big impact with Clean Energy Trust and Energize, and I think we'll make an even bigger impact with Buoyant. And so on the Clean Energy Trust side, tell us a bit about Clean Energy Trust and what it is and why you made the decision that that was the right entry point into doing something more purposeful, as you described. Clean Energy Trust is 10 years old now. We started, actually initially started in 2009, but it was incorporated in 2010. Nick Pritzker, Michael Polsky, and I, and then a number of the founding board members launched it. And we actually launched as a nonprofit because 10 years ago, the purpose of starting Clean Energy Trust was to support early stage businesses in the Midwestern United States that had clean tech solutions. And there was very, very little early stage capital for these kinds of businesses, you know, in general, but especially in the, in the Midwest. And we had this amazing group of research institutions and universities that had very compelling solutions, but had really no path to creating a company. And this was long before all the universities had seed funds that they have now. Okay, this was long before Breakthrough Energy Ventures and any of these other funding vehicles. They just didn't exist. There were very few clean tech, even venture funds that were being formed then. And so we did it as a nonprofit because A, we knew it was going to take a long time to deploy the capital, to find the right solutions. And then B, we knew that we needed to wrap these companies with services and other kinds of support, program support, and that that program support would not be fundable with just fees off of a venture fund. And so we raised money into a nonprofit and then we deployed capital out as convertible debt or investments into these companies. And then we determined to recycle the capital when we could get the money back, whether it was through an exit of the company or someone buying out our position. And so 10 years later, it's starting to recycle. So it's starting to work. And we funded over 35 companies in that time frame with not that much money. These are small checks. We're writing, you know, hundred thousand, couple hundred thousand dollars to these businesses. The put it, out about $6 million. And those companies have raised about $150 million in follow-on funding. And so it's starting to work, but it took 10 years. And so that was why we did it as a nonprofit. And we are really just trying to start the businesses. So in, in a few cases, we've done follow-on funding. But again, it was mostly to get all these businesses started. And then the staff at Clean Energy Trust really helps to raise additional capital and support and mentor those businesses. So I'm now on the board and I'm chairwoman of the board and the organization is run by someone who's very capable named Eric Burkertz and the team there is incredible and they're doing great. And when you first made the decision to start working in college climate or clean energy or, or whatever the term of the day, but did you assume that you would need to sacrifice wealth for purpose or how did you think about that initial entry into the space? Well, I think, yeah. So initially, we just thought it was going to be so hard. After doing some work to assess the kinds of solutions, we just knew that the pressure on returns for that capital would be really hard for the kinds of things that were necessary in the Midwest. That's what I would say. I, impact investing didn't really exist back then. That wasn't really a thing. So this idea of concessionary returns wasn't really a thing. We had considered over the years creating a for-profit vehicle to invest alongside Clean Energy Trust. And we have looked at that and we may still do that at some point in the future. But 
what we decided to do was just to refill the coffers of the organization to keep doing these really early stage funding events because it's working. And we've had like four exits. We did actually measure returns for Clean Energy Trust. And actually the returns are not terrible for something that is got a 10 year life on it and is doing very risky stuff. So the returns are sort of single digit IRRs. So if we had tried to get the money back. That's what the portfolio is valued at now. There's a lot of unrealized returns in that portfolio. And and the really the big thing that's depressing the IRs is the time. You know, it just takes so long to get to build and grow these companies because so many of them are hard tech companies that it just takes a long time. And so that's really the thing that's putting pressure on the returns there as well, because we think we're trying to pick companies that are financially sustainable or that can go on to raise more money. We don't want to fund a business that's going to fizzle out after our capital, that's not going to help anybody. So our goal is to help get them started to catalyze other investors. And when you think about the kind of innovation that is needed to address climate change, and you think about the concessionary capital, as you described, coming from someplace like a clean energy trust versus what I'm assuming is more market-based capital coming from an Energize or a, a Buoyant Ventures, How do you think about the best sources of capital for the most impactful climate innovation? Well, you know, define most impactful, I guess I would say. (laughs) So let's start there. What is the most impactful climate innovation and how do you define? All right. So here's how I think about it. I think there is a spectrum of impact there from, say, things that could have as some of the Funders like Breakthrough Energy Ventures evaluates the total carbon reduction from potential of the companies that they fund. You have that on the one hand. On the other hand, you might have a company that can have meaningful impact that is not measured in carbon reductions as much as it is could be measured in clean energy deploy, or it could be measured in capital allocated towards solutions that are going to have more climate benefits. And so there's a range, there's a spectrum of impact. And I personally think that the more successful venture investors are in the space financially, the better it is for everybody. So the more successful that climate investors are financially, that that is going to mobilize more capital and is also, from my perspective, going to mobilize solutions that have more near-term benefits. And I think that we, you know, we definitely still need to think about the long-term. Like we definitely need folks like Clean Energy Trust and Breakthrough Energy Ventures and others working on things that are very hard to commercialize and that could be fundamentally major improvements over existing technology solutions. But I feel like the urgency requires us to put into market a number of these solutions that can be deployed and commercially scaled up immediately and that can be built upon today's infrastructure and that can deliver you know liquidity for investors in a sh- in a venture time frame in a shorter amount of time a typical venture time frame so i want to be playing in that space because again i feel like that from an urgency standpoint but also I think the more successful we are at this, the more capital we'll bring into the mix. And I think we're starting to see that. You know, one thing I would say with Buoyant and our thesis, there's two main things that we saw in the last few years that have motivated us on our thesis. One is that institutionally, there's been billions and billions of dollars created in new investment vehicles with 
large institutional investors, PE firms, banks, and other institutional investors. And that's because pressure that they've gotten from their investors for an appetite around these kinds of vehicles. Like, and, and these are vehicles that are either looking for investments in clean energy infrastructure or are measuring their investments for ESG impacts. So that's coming from those big institutional investors from pressure from them. It could be you know, even an endowment that's getting pressure from the students at a university. It could be a pension fund that's getting pressure from its, the folks that are paying into the pension fund. So that's one major shift that has happened. And the second major shift is all the corporations that are making commitments to decarbonize their business. And that too has started from either customers calling for that or from employees and calling for that as well as shareholders. So shareholders looking for that adjustment and whether you're a big oil super major that's making a commitment to lower or decarbonize, or you're even someone on the retail end or consumer end of things, there's, there's this pressure. In both cases with the institutional investors and the corporations, I think what we're starting to see now and what we will see over the next few years is that those are going to be more successful companies and investments. And that's going to draw even more capital into the space. And so that's part of what we're trying to invest in are technologies that will facilitate that transition and get us to the point where the folks that have the ESG fund or the index, the sustainable index is going to outperform the non-sustainable index or the non-sustainable, but you know, the fossil fuel heavy investment vehicle. And I think you're going to see this outperformance starting to happen. And I want to be sitting in the middle of that because I think that we're right in the beginning of that and it's going to start to happen very, very quickly. We're tracking what some of the groups like the task force on climate related financial disclosures is doing, what the Fed just, you know, called out last week, looking for there to be more clear climate risk assessment in banks portfolios, seeing what New Zealand and the UK have done calling for this. This is going to start to snowball really, really fast. That's what we think. And we want to be sitting right in the middle of this and and looking for companies that can help facilitate that. And that does not take an invention of a new solar cell. That does not take an invention of a new battery chemistry. It doesn't take a carbon sequestration technology to facilitate that. That's all going to start to happen with what we know and have available today. And with the benefit of hindsight, how do you think about the key lessons around the first wave of clean tech investment and innovation? We are big fans of the accelerators. So I think all these different incubators and accelerators are doing tremendous work. And I love what Greentown Labs is doing in Elemental Accelerator and the folks at UrbanX and Lacey and other groups. I think they're doing tremendous work to incubate these businesses. So we still need them to keep doing that, right? We, we can't take so our- Were those missing in the, in the first wave or I guess- lo- They were. Okay. They were. Okay. Yes, they were. Number two, the other thing is- the first wave of investing, so going back to sort of like circa 2010 or so, when Clean Energy Trust was getting started and when we started to see some of the losses in the big, okay, so you're referring to that. So, okay, so a few things, and you guys, I think you've talked about this a lot on your show. It's not any new revelations. I think we understand some of what happened there. But I think, A, the kinds of investments that were being funded were really hard to fit into the time frame and risk appetite of venture capital. It was a mismatch of capital for companies. Second was the investors had some blind spots around energy markets, energy, clean energy regulations, the role of policy and politics. I think they have some major blind spots there. And then I would say this stuff is not for tourists. 
You know what I mean? Like you have to be super committed to this. It does not perform. The broad range of clean energy technologies do not perform the way that IT or or consumer technology investments do perform. So if you're looking for um, companies that are like the ones that we're looking for that are primarily software companies, you can draw more from that, from how you grow an enterprise software business and how you grow some of these climate technology solutions that are more digital in nature. There's definitely more you can learn from that. But capital intensive manufacturing intensive investments are just kind of a mismatch for traditional venture capital. So that's why you need some of these other other forms of capital that have greater risk tolerance, have longer horizons for returns, you know, are maybe layered on with some amount of philanthropic capital. That's why that's necessary for some of the hard science and hard to fund clean energy solutions. Sitting where we are today, where you have certain firms that were around since well before the last wave and stuck it out and they're not tourists and they're gearing up for the next wave. And then increasingly there's people from Silicon Valley, from traditional tech that are picking their heads up and heading this way. I'm imagining much like they did back at the outset of the first wave. How do you feel about that Silicon Valley blood starting to head in this direction. Is that a good thing? Why? Is is that a concern for you? Why? I think more capital is a good thing. Absolutely. I think if the folks that are doing this are have learned from what, if, if you don't understand history, you're doomed to repeat history. Okay. So like if, if they understand what happened historically, then they will be aware and they'll be prepared. But I think for sure, more capital is a good thing. We don't want people to lose money. So we want them to pick wisely. And I think for instance, Buoyant is finding itself in looking at more and more companies where there is a more general tech investor. And we think that that's that's a good thing, especially what's needed to scale up these businesses. The expertise there is really deep in some of these firms. And so we really want that expertise as well. We just also want to make sure that folks take a look back historically to understand how to do things a little bit differently. It's not so different from biotech that has a very long ramp has a lot of regulatory hurdles in it, is rather capital intensive. And that's why you have specialists in those categories. So I think that we welcome the capital, but I think I've talked to a couple of those um, investors and some of them are maybe cognizant of what needs to happen to have different performance outcomes and some are less cognizant of it. We will try our best. I know a bunch of the other investors that are doing a lot of investing in this space will hopefully do what we can to sort of share our perspective and bring more of that capital into the good deal so that everybody has a better outcome this time. Since you've chosen with the new firm to have a digital focus, would you say that the non-digital focus areas, call it deep tech or hard tech or more breakthrough technologies or whatever buzzwords to describe some of the, you know, the moving atoms companies, are there any of those that are a good fit for traditional venture capital or should the traditional, the LPs that are used to investing in traditional venture capital, for example, should they just stay away from funds that do that kind of investing? I think it's a matter of when, you know what I mean? I think that looking again at how long it's going to take for some of these technologies to mature and when the venture comes in. I think to be a seed investor in a company that's a hard tech company, a battery chemistry or fusion company, i don't know when you're going to get your money out of that. So I think that that is, that's hard. That's really hard. I think coming in later when there's been some proof points or where there's really clear traction so that a lot of the technology risk has been addressed, 
and it's more about, you know, knocking down more commercial partners, that can still be a great place for venture. And there's a lot of big funds that do later stage investing, right? They're sort of looking at series C. If you're a big fund that isn't climate focused and you want to have some activity in that space, then I think it, you know, you're going to want to come in a little bit later when that technology risk has been addressed. Otherwise, you're just going to be waiting a long, long time. So if you're an individual and you don't mind waiting a long time because maybe you've got a portion of your assets that you have a longer return horizon on it, then that's great. I think you just have to have your eyes wide open on how long these solutions take to develop and scale up. So a typical venture fund has this sort of five-year deployment and then five-year harvest and fusion, there's been no fusion scale up that's happened in that amount of time. So you're just going to be waiting a long time to get your money back and maybe making sure that the capital that's coming in is prepared for that longer return cycle. And you said that with Buoyant, you're doing a round focus on digital climate solutions. How does an a round firm focused on digital climate solutions differ than an a round firm that is doing digital solutions without the word climate in there? Not too different. So if I'm a traditional a round digital venture capitalist and I care about climate change and want to start investing in this area, I mean, is it as simple as just starting to look for digital solutions that focus on climate? Or is there anything that I need to do as a firm to enable me to be successful that I did not need to do when I was focused on the more traditional areas that I have focused on for the last decade or two? Well, there's a ton of companies now. You could take a purely digital lens and still find a lot of companies. We've got over 380 of them in our deal pipeline because a couple of things that are different, Jason, too, when we kind of going back to you know why there are so many more businesses is they're not just focused on clean tech. They're looking for climate solutions across all these different industries. And one area that we're super excited about is what we're calling climate risk intelligence. And this is you know companies that are using data to drive some kind of insight that they sell to big investors or asset managers or insurance companies that have a, have a climate focus. And that's a pretty new category of company. It's only really begun and been started like in the last five years. And it's because there's been so much innovation around data analytics and data capture. The, the capturing of data from low cost sensors has become so prolific that there is now an abundance of data to analyze and the analytical tools, the AI and machine learning and other tools have become so much more sophisticated. I would say table stakes for a lot of these businesses that that's relatively new innovation. So now you're seeing applications across this very wide assortment of industry segments. And which is why one of the other reasons I didn't mention, but we're looking well beyond energy, right? This is sort of climate touching every facet of industry. And so I think that that is part of the opportunity here is you've got folks that are, you know, in, and within this climate risk intelligence space. So I'm going to quickly look at one of our market maps that we've got here. We've got a brilliant person on our team working on this. So we're looking at they're in the financial services sector, they're in the ag land use and water sectors, they're in disaster management, they're sort of broad based in sort of corporate as well as broader asset management. So there's a lot of companies that are applying these technologies to a wide set of customers. And in most cases, those are large enterprises that are buying those solutions. In other cases, they're communities. 
but there's been a lot of also M&A activity in the last few years is just starting. We've been really excited as we're watching in the financial services space. You've got folks like Moody's is being acquisitive in this area. Morningstar acquired Sustainalytics. Moody's acquired 427. S&P, you know, acquired TrueCost. Got NASDAQ acquired one report. So you're starting to see this acquisition space happen for financial services companies, and that's going to broaden out to insurance. You're going to see starting to see this in, in the insurance sector. You're going to start to see this in the ag sector. It's really, really happening. And that wasn't even a thing really five years ago. So that's why I think there's huge opportunities. And so I think a number of the, when we look at these companies, a number of those companies are funded. So here, a good example is a company that got funded recently called in the insurance space, the wildfire insurance space is a company called Kettle. I don't think it has a climate investor in their first, in their A round. So I think it's general tech and it's an insure tech group of funders. there, accrue, true ventures, Anthemis. And so that's what we're going to start to see more and more too is a, is a lot of these sort of general tech investors coming into this space because these businesses in some cases are like fintech companies, but they're going to scale up with less capital and quickly and become attractive acquisition targets in what I would predict is a more feasible venture timeframe. And so if you take, let's say a breakthrough energy ventures, they've got their half a gigaton threshold and they'll put a team of people towards doing an engagement to first assess the potential emissions reduction potential of an opportunity before they even evaluate it from a venture standpoint. How do you know with Buoyant if a company meets the climate threshold for investment? What's the filter? So we're looking at nine UN sustainable development goals. We did a wide scan of all the different ways to measure impact and We settled on the IFC impact principles and these nine UN sustainable development goals because we thought they were very thoughtful and sort of well supported by other industry players. And so we screen our investments along those metrics and we require that we can measure impact across our portfolio in accordance with those. Now that impact may be sometimes on the mitigation and the carbon reduction side, it may also be on the adaptation side, which is really the case for a lot of these these insure tech companies, right? They're offering an insurance product that is either helping to insure a segment of the insurance customer base that is not insurable or not insurable at a reasonable rate. Or in other cases, they're creating new insurance products that smooth out some of the volatility in the insurance space. And so we think that that has more of an adaptation benefit than it does a mitigation benefit, but we're looking at both. One of the things that I've noticed is that on some opportunities, they have a climate focus in that the company can profit from climate change getting worse and from the clean energy transition, but it's harder in my mind to assess if they can actually help with the transition or if they're strictly just patting their wallets and those are their investors along the way. How do you distinguish which is which? Is that something that that you found that you wrestle with in in certain cases as well? Definitely money is going to be made in this area. I guess the question is, is it hurting? You know, like give me an example of a company that's profiting off of climate change that is making it worse. I can't really think of one that we've seen that's making climate change worse. I think there's folks that are absolutely profiting off of the changing climate for sure. 
but I can't think of anybody who's sort of, I, you know, would that be a company that is emitting more? Was well, is a fund that shorts real estate, you know, mispriced real estate that doesn't properly factor in climate risk sure. in in sure. areas that are okay. that are most vulnerable to sea level rise? Is right. that a climate focused company? That's a great point. Yeah. So if they're shorting, <laughs> so we were just talking with an investor recently. I won't say who who has developed a product to a hedge product that they are shorting. And it's interesting because he also considers himself to be a climate activist and he sees the perversity of what he's doing. But that's not what we're looking at investing in. So yes, I think you have to be thoughtful about that for sure. Here's another example. In this whole ratings and risk assessment space, there's a company in your neck of the woods called Risk with a Q at the end. And they're creating a measurement or risk rating for bonds, for municipal bonds, right? And I would say... That is very helpful because if you're going to be investing in municipal bonds, you sure as heck should know if that bond is going to be facing severe climate risk, right? So if you're an airport or a school district or a hospital in an area that is prone to hurricanes or flooding, I think that should be disclosed. I don't think that they're making it worse. If they are profiting, they're saying, hello, pay attention to this risk. Don't put your money over here. Put it in this other thing. And, you know, it's kind of the same thing that we've seen here in commercial real estate. We've seen some commercial real estate, but if you were to get a some kind of rating or disclosure on, say, for instance, the, the climate risk or the energy cost to that property, and you wanted to mandate that and make that disclosed when that property is changing hands, the people that are fighting that are the real estate agents, right? Because they think that's going to prevent their sale. If there's somebody who's got a flood risk, for this home that wasn't disclosed because the all the floodplain reports and maps are outdated, but this basement's been flooded like three times, that should be disclosed, right? But a lot of the real estate firms don't want that because they don't want to make it harder. And the seller certainly doesn't want that. But if you're a buyer, you really want to know that. And that's sort of what we're faced with right now. Like You should be able to be aware of where you're putting your money and there should be some really strong motivation for that risk to be disclosed. And that's what TCFD is trying to do with institutional capital. And I think we're going to start to see that more and more. But I would say those folks that are calling for that or or have solutions around that risk assessment, I don't think they're making climate worse. I think that they're absolutely trying to draw attention to measuring something that previously hasn't been measured. One of the things that was kind of drilled into my head spending my whole career working in Silicon Valley style companies is that innovation is a source for good and that you can you know, use capitalism as a powerful tool to bring about change. I still believe that, but one of the things that I do wrestle with as I look at a systems problem like climate change is that I feel like, I think I'm concerned that capitalism and unbridled market forces won't take us all the way there and in some ways can even be self-reinforcing in terms of inhibiting our ability to properly address the problem in the timeframes that we need. So how do you think about that? I guess, how far can innovation take us? And then how do we get the rest of the way there? It probably doesn't take us all the way there. Remember the couple of years ago, a lot of the disagreements around 100% renewables and could we power the country off of 100% renewables? And I think a lot more people could get comfortable that we could do it on 80% renewables. And by God, if we got did it on 80% renewables, then that was a hell of a lot better than we have today. So like, let's not let perfect be the enemy of good in this instance. And let's just really get these technologies deployed and 
I don't think innovation only is the solution. I think absolutely, you know, some kind of federal leadership or a, a policy lever like a carbon tax could absolutely be super beneficial. And I think that you know, many of these large corporations are looking for some consistent lead, leadership federally, some price signals to follow that are consistent. And that's unfortunately in our democracy that those very, you know, what one administration puts forward can be undone by the next. And that kind of, you know, seesawing back and forth is extremely unproductive. So I think that, you know, it takes a long time to like look at the carbon emissions of the vehicle emission targets, right? So the whole like auto and truck industry got mobilized around these aggressive emission targets. And then President Trump tried to undo those. And they're like, well, wait a minute, we're just like retooling our whole, you know, I think having some kind of consistent policy signals is really, really helpful. And that that is what is needed in conjunction with innovation is you've got to have some consistent leadership that when you have almost every country in the world signing up to be part of the Paris Climate Accord and the United States pulls out, I mean, it that doesn't make any sense. You know, you really do need global leadership on this. And so I'm relieved that the Biden-Harris administration will um, bring us back into the Paris Climate Accord and has made commitments to being very progressive on climate. So I'm hopeful that we'll see some really big changes happen, but we need that kind of policy leadership as well. And one of the things that I've heard repeatedly in the last couple of years as I've tried to get up the learning curve in this area is that if you want to work on impactful things, the impactful things tend to be the harder tech innovation. And if you want to make a profit, focus on digital, but that a lot of the digital stuff is just, you know, kind of lip service, greenwashing, whatever you want to call it. And I think what I'm hearing from you is that you seem to have identified an area of digital that you believe can be high impact on the problem, financials aside, like actually looking at like the impact on the problem of climate change. So can you talk a bit more about that and maybe some areas of digital that you believe can be most impactful? I'm really excited about some of the technologies that are really market making, right? Where they're going to create a new insurance product. And so you've got a few, whether that's a company that is, okay, so you invested in in Pachma and it's an interesting company, right? And they're making a market for this. I would say that's a market making company. I think that's really intriguing. I like what they're doing. Bravo that you're doing that. Another one that we like is energetic insurance, right? So energetic insurance is helping to create, measure the risk and help with underwriting of rooftop solar solutions for commercial industrial businesses. That's helping to spur a market, trying to solve a market problem with technology that could really unlock a lot of capital for rooftop solar. So I think that that's really intriguing. I like what some of the folks are doing around community solar. I think that that's helping to really make a new market of customers, getting them comfortable with becoming a customer in a community solar product. But in that case, it's very dependent upon regulation. So you've got to be very smart about where you roll that out because you have to have supportive state regulations. I think, you know, on this climate intelligence space, like I said, we're looking at solutions that could really be applied for what we would say across really three main buckets. One are banks, folks that are helping to measure the risk and support compliance for things like TCFD and other regulations that banks are now faced with. 
We're also looking for folks that can measure risk and look for solutions for asset managers. So those could be, you know, financial asset managers, those could be physical infrastructure asset managers. And then we're really looking at folks that have solutions for insurance. So if you're able to create a new market, a new insurance product, or you're able to help create insurance product for somebody that otherwise was uninsurable, we think that that's a really exciting opportunity. And that in all those three cases, that's going to be touching trillions of dollars of capital over the next decade. And these little companies have this expertise that does not exist with inside these companies. So we were really surprised when we talked with a number of insurance companies. You had Barney from the Phil on. I think he's brilliant. I think when I read his podcast with you, I reached out to you and I said, I thought it was really great. And so we're friends with Barney and I love what he's doing. Uh, it's a whole new category of catastrophe insurance that hasn't existed. So you've got to look for these opportunities that I think have potential scale. You're still going to be have to be patient. Because if you're making a new market, that means there's a lot of education that's necessary in these instances, and that the folks are going to really move, it's really going to scale once you have some early traction. So in all the categories that I talked about, we're seeing a lot of entrants. There's maybe a dozen folks that are doing the same kind of thing, and there's not going to be a dozen winners. So you do want to choose very carefully, and, and that's part of the reason we're focused on Series A. We want to see those businesses once they've gotten the business model figured out a little bit and when they've got some customer traction and they're staffed with the right kind of people that can really scale up those businesses. One thing that we've seen repeatedly is it's very common to start out in this sort of climate risk intelligence category as a consulting business and then to try to become a software company or a SaaS business. And it's hard to make that transition. It's okay to do that. There's nothing wrong with it, but the more reliant you are on that consulting income where you're creating these custom or bespoke solutions for your customers, the longer it's going to take you to create something that's truly scalable, that's more of a subscription business or more of a software tool. So we look for businesses that have that perspective from the very beginning kind of baked into their business model and or where they've made that transition already and the business model is already starting to see traction. So that's a really important thing to consider as well, because typically consulting businesses are not venture fundable. Another kind of related question that I've been wrestling with is, so if you take a company that, let's say it's digital, let's say it's high impact, it you know, fits into one of the SDGs, and it sets out, I don't know, to, to focus on, say, geothermal or solar or, or something that is clean and that helps with the clean energy transition, and then at some point along the way, they uncover that it's got applications for, let's say, oil and gas. Now, I know there's some concessionary capital that would say from the outset that they're not allowed to venture into some of those areas that might be counter to the impact side of the equation. But I have to imagine if I'm a market-based fund that you were describing that does not have a climate focus, that I'm not going to like those constraints because it's going to limit how much money this company can ultimately make. How does Buoyant think about that, given that you have this dual focus that you were describing? That happens. That happens a lot, right? I mean, I think about a couple of ways. One is there are some companies that are using digital technologies to reduce emissions for, specifically for the oil and gas industry. I think that's intriguing. We haven't found any that we're in deep diligence on, but there's a few that we're tracking, right? They're using technology to identify leakages and pipelines that really is being ultimately pursued by 
the oil and gas industry to sort of improve their profitability, but it's also having an important effect of less environmental hazardous activities. There's other folks, there's another company that I've seen recently that is creating, they've got sort of a a ratings or sort of a, a clean kind of rating for natural gas, right? There's gas that is being harvested more sustainably and is being also processed and then deployed with more environmental controls on it, right? So if you're going to be in the natural gas market, this gas is rated with a super organic rating on food or whatever, and that, that you can trust that that rating is true, then if you're going to purchase that gas and you want to have that rating on it, and you're going to pay a little bit more for it because it's premium. I think that's intriguing. I think that's an intriguing solution. I don't know that it will, from our perspective, meet our um, requirements for investment or if we'll get there from an investment standpoint. but. I do think it's an important solution. We're going to be using fossil fuels for decades to come. And if somebody has a technology that can help reduce the impacts during those decades, then I think that that's really an important thing. I mean, it's kind of the same as carbon capture, right? I mean, if you're used to deploying carbon capture to make these carbon intensive technologies or businesses less carbon intensive, I think we've gotten to the point where you cannot be so dogmatic or narrowly focused only on 100% clean solutions, I think we've got to really also look for technologies that can reduce the emissions of these technologies that exist today. Well, this was such a wide-ranging and comprehensive discussion. Is there anything I didn't ask you that I should have or any parting words for listeners? Yeah, I did. I wanted to say one thing we didn't cover was diversity. And I am super excited that there was some research that was published from women in VC that you probably saw a couple of weeks ago, that only 5.6% of all US venture funds are run by women. And only 5% of all the partners in US venture funds are women. And we are really excited to see more and more women coming into the game and starting funds in the space. And we are really excited that we are finding, so within Buoyant, two of the three partners are women. So my partner, Allison Myers, and then my partner, Daniel Halla, who was your first Climate Journey podcast participant who I adore in Boston. But the three of us are partners at Buoyant, and we are finding a very diverse group of companies. And almost half of the companies in our pipeline are diverse from a gender or ethnic standpoint. And that is not because we are actively looking for them. It's because diverse fund managers find that we have different networks. You know, we have networks that are different from white men. And so we know a lot of these women in the business, we take a harder look at those companies that have diverse folks in them. And then we aim to help those companies diversify. So When we make an investment, we want to see that a company will commit to considering diverse candidates for the hires that they have. You know, we will look to add board members, independent board members that are diverse. That this isn't that hard to do. It's really not that hard to do. Okay. And so I think that diversity begets diversity in this case. And I would just say that we should all be striving for that. And we're really, really proud of that. And we want to support as many diverse founders and CEOs as we can, but we're also really excited to work with more diverse fund managers. And I think that that's really, really important. And 
I don't think we should ever take our eyes off the ball or um, our focus off of that as well. I think that we also have some good data that shows diverse investors perform better as well. So you know what, that's, we're excited to be a diverse fund manager and excited to work with others in the space. And all of you white men as well, we'll work with you guys too. <laughs> well, I'm so glad you brought that up. Diversity is very important to us as well at, at MCJ. And we, we're trying and we've you know made some inroads, but we can certainly do better. And it also just seems like with learning any new craft, you know, with each new bit of progress you make, it unlocks more visibility into where you're lacking. And so it's almost like the further we get in, the more behind we feel, but Great. definitely something that's important. And, and thank you for flagging that as well for me and for everybody listening. Yeah. Well, I think we're making slow and steady progress, but we got to speed it up. And I think it's really important to support diverse fund managers because I think what the key message there is that diverse fund managers will find at a higher rate, more diverse portfolio companies too. So that's important. Okay. Well, Amy, thanks again for coming on the show and best of luck to you and to everybody on the Boyan Ventures team. And hopefully we can find more ways to work together over time in, in whatever form that may take. Jason, we love what you're doing. We love the community you're building. Thank you so much for turning your attention to it. Keep doing what you're doing. We love it. And we'll be excited to follow you into some of your companies too. So congrats on getting your fund launched. Okay. Thanks again, Amy. Take care. Hey, everyone. Jason here. Thanks again for joining me on my climate journey. If you'd like to learn more about the journey, you can visit us at myclimatejourney.co. Note that is .co, not .com. Someday we'll get the .com, but right now, .co. You can also find me on Twitter at jjacobs22, where I would encourage you to share your feedback on the episode or suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear. And before I let you go, if you enjoyed the show, please share an episode with a friend or consider leaving a review on iTunes. The lawyers made me say that. Thank you. Thank you.